Thursday, March 3rd, 2016. Downtown Detroit. McKay Coppins is about to have a long couple of months. Now, a recent report in BuzzFeed citing sources at the Times reports that in that interview, you expressed flexibility when it comes to your immigration policy, specifically with respect to your promise to deport the 11 million people who are now living here illegally. First of all, BuzzFeed, they were the ones that said under no circumstances will I run for president. And were they wrong? McKay is BuzzFeed News' senior political writer, and he writes a lot about Republicans. He actually wrote the book on the 2016 presidential field. He's also the guy people think made Donald Trump happen. Long before the book came out, McKay spent a couple days with Trump. He flew on Trump's plane, went to one of Trump's hotels. He interviewed him. It was 2014, and Trump was again making noises about running for president. It's hard to remember now, but Trump used to always do this kind of thing around election time. Make noises like he was going to run for president, and then never actually do it. McKay wrote a story about that aspect of Trump's personality that wasn't very flattering. It painted a picture of a selfish man who loved attention but didn't have the wherewithal to actually try politics for real. Trump got very upset at McKay's story. He gave McKay the full Twitter treatment, including attacking McKay's character and even his wife. McKay also wrote that Trump would never run for president. A lot of people also wrote that, and basically everybody thought it. Once Trump did run, McKay and a lot of other people thought he'd never win their Republican nomination. McKay was wrong. But so were all those other people. Then came the debate question in Detroit. Trump dismissed it by mentioning the story that McKay wrote and McKay's conclusion that he'd never run for president. People who don't like Trump started asking, is it McKay's fault? Did he do this? This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Evan McMorris-Santoro. Today, is everyone wrong about Trump's motivations? Joining us is McKay himself. He just published a big story about how Trump happened over at BuzzFeed News. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for that, uh, that stirring introduction. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, people really do think that Donald Trump is your fault, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess, like... The thing is, this started out as a joke, right? Like other journalists and like Politico type people would like make jokes back last year when he first started to run. They would be like, oh, it's all your fault, McKay. There was a hashtag blame McKay. Um, <laughs> but it was clearly a joke. And it was kind of like flattering because, you know, as a, any journalist, you're like, oh, yeah, like I made this happen. Like it was all, you know, fun and games. Uh -huh. And then like. People kept making that joke. <laughs> and then, like, as Trump kept winning, it became less and less of a joke and more and more of, like, an accusation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, like, and, and I think that, like, that moment in the debate, I write about this in the story, when he said that was kind of the moment when I realized that this had crossed over from just, like, an insider Twitter joke to, right. like, everyone I knew in my life was, like, texting me and emailing me and calling me. <laughs> and some of them were like, wow, you really did this. And then some of them were like, wow, you really did this. And it, like, was, wasn't a fun, a nice thing. So, okay. <laughs> Is it your fault, McKay? Um, no, well... So I, tr I tried to figure that out over the last several months, basically. Uh -huh. From that moment, uh, you know, short, not long after that, I think it was a couple months after that, Trump officially won the nomination. So I basically dropped off the campaign trail and uh, spent uh, a couple months trying to figure out 
what I got wrong about him uh, when I said that he would never run. And also, like, in a broader sense, like, whether this really was my fault, like whether I needed to <laughs> repent. Um, but but I think that, you know, the, basically the conclusion I came to is that, like, I do think Trump's presidential ambitions uh, and, and him actually, uh, you know, pulling the trigger and doing it this time does have a lot to do with wanting to prove the haters like me wrong. But I also found over the course of reporting this story that there is a long tradition and long list of haters that have gotten under Trump's skin over the course of his life uh, who have kind of fueled this and, and planted a lot of kind of anxiety and insecurity in him that that I think is what's driving this. But I, I don't think it's all my fault. I want to drill in on that because the context for your first story about this, where you went on this amazing whirlwind tour with Trump and you found out about how he watches his own TV coverage on his plane and he's just sort of obsessed with himself and people talking about him. At that time, you weren't really going out on a limb to suggest that this guy was a complete phony when it came to actually doing <laughs> politics. No. Everybody was everybody was basically thinking that then. Right. I mean, look, this was early 2014 when I spent time with him, and, and, and I did not come up with the idea that Trump was not serious about this. I was just kind of channeling what kind of everyone in politics and everyone in media, uh, and certainly everyone in New York over the past several decades who have followed Trump, kind of knew, which is that he's a showman and that he does everything for publicity and everything's kind of a marketing stunt. The very first time he ran for, he, he, no, the very first time he pretended to run for president uh -huh. uh, was, ahead of the 1988 uh, election and he started to make noise about it because he was about to publish The Art of the Deal and it was a publicity stunt. It was a way to to get some national notoriety. Oh. And uh, and so he's been doing this forever, right? In 2011, he was he was uh, he kept the charade up through May sweeps so that uh, the Celebrity Apprentice could get a lot of ratings. I mean, this was not like a new phenomenon. But one thing that I think that I missed about him was that he doesn't just want attention. And I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make about him and that, that I made about him. He wants respect, and he wants respect from people he deems to be important or uh, kind of insiders or elites. And, and, and that's kind of, I think, what is the big irony of, of Trump's campaign is that you see him up there kind of talking about the political elites and the corporate uh, cronies and uh, all these these media people who are screwing over the white working class and the average working man. Uh, but the reality is Trump's entire life has kind of been fueled by the status anxiety uh, that's made him always want those elites to to accept him as one of their own. And he never really has gotten there. Tell us about that. Like, where does your story begin when it comes to Trump? And this trying to make himself an appealing part of this elite class. Um, well, I, I take it all the way back to when he went to uh, UPenn. Um, he went to the Wharton School of Finance. Uh, oh, I've heard that. The undergrad. Yeah, I don't know I, if you if I you've heard ever one of the best business schools in the world. I went to the Wharton School of Finance. I was an excellent student. I'm a smart person. I went to an Ivy League school. I was a good student. I went to the Wharton School of Finance, the best business school in the world, probably, certainly, I mean, one of the great schools of the world. Don, you know what they like to do? They like to say, well, we don't consider him uh, a serious candidate. Why wouldn't I be? I went to the Wharton School of Finance. I was a great student. I was such, one of the hardest schools in the world to get into. Good, good genes. Very good genes, okay? The Wharton School of Finance. Very good. Very smart. You know, if you're a conservative Republican, if I were a liberal, if, like, okay, if I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. 
by the way, just to fact check that, he went undergrad, right? Most people, when they hear Wharton School of Finance, right now, today, when you say Wharton School of Finance, you think he got an MBA. He didn't. He, he went to the undergrad. But when he was at UPenn, this was a, he, he was among kind of the elite of the elite. Right. He's, re- I mean, he's really rich as a kid. I mean, well, he's a really oh, yeah, rich he was dad. Born he's, into a, his... he's a very rich yes. guy, and he goes to a very rich person's school. But here's the difference, though, because he was born into a rich family, but he grew up in Queens, okay? Okay. And, and Trump's whole kind of shtick uh, already by the time he gets to college is kind of he's very brash and macho and uh, he thinks that the way to impress people is to wear three-piece suits and drive around in a in a burgundy limousine and he realizes when he gets there that like that doesn't work on people like that they think he's just kind of like like uncouth and gross and and like comes on too strong and he does move to Manhattan after graduating from college but he has to commute back to Brooklyn to work for his dad and he's just always kind of trying to switch sweep- at that time was not as cool as it is now. No, no, no. Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, well, I think about this a lot. I, I bet Trump wishes that he had like all those rental properties in Brooklyn now because they're incredibly expensive. Can you imagine how but, great it'd be like? It'd be like it'd be like just uh, like artisan pickles, but like, they'd be gilded. <laughs> yes. This is the finest small batch gilded mushrooms, whatever it is you could get. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway. Um, but yeah, but, but then this is kind of his whole life, right? He moves to Manhattan. His entire career is about trying to be accepted as one of the, you know, top flight developers in the city. And the real developers think he's a joke. And then this magazine launches called Spy Magazine in the mid-80s. Mid-80s launches. And you talked to one of the co-founders of the magazine, Kurt Anderson. And just to put this in perspective, Spy Magazine is kind of like a magazine that just sort of savages the powerful. Yeah, it was basically like the Gawker of its day, right? A lot of people think it's like the forebear of Gawker. It was all about, you know, ridiculing and lampooning uh, the New York ruling class. uh, And they immediately latch on to Donald Trump as one of their main characters. And they just really uh, go after him because they find him such an irresistible target. And at this point, by the time Spy Magazine comes around, he's already a guy that has some real estate. Em- he's, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's, well, he's inherited he's basically now. his dad's right, his dad's real estate empire, okay. and he's built Trump Tower, and he's about to publish the Art of the Deal. So he's just about to become a national figure, but he's not yet. He's really just this New York character. So, but Spy Magazine comes out, and this is important. You you, you think like, why does this magazine matter? But like, it really ended up kind of solidifying and creating the cartoonified version of Donald Trump that we all know today. You know, Trump had created his own character. But obviously, in his mind, it was it was a very impressive character. What uh, what Spy Magazine was did was they took that character and they subverted it, um, and they made him out to be this kind of absurd, grotesque, uh, transparently um, insecure, uh, kind of gross guy. And they did all these things that just kind of humiliated him. One example is they uh, did this stunt where they sent. Uh, in an increasingly small series of checks uh, to to like the richest people in New York to see how how small they could get the amount of money and still have those people cash them or deposit them. Um, uh-huh. and, and Donald Trump is the last one. I think he deposits a check for like sixty four cents. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then they like, of course, like splash that on the front page of Spy Magazine, and everyone laughs at him. They're also the ones who come up with the uh, term "short fingered vulgarian." This is, which the, is, this is, this is the beginning of this. Sm- 
small hands yes, thing. Yes, and, to- yeah. and it just haunts him. He he hates it. He like even into up until today. So for literally decades, he will every once in a while send a picture of his hands to one of the founding editors of this magazine and write things like "See, not so small." What? <laughs> like, as recently as last year, this happened to, to Graydon Carter. Yeah. Why? What was it about him at the time that Spy Magazine came out that made Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter want to vulgarize? Like, I mean, want to, like, satirize him so much. Yeah. I mean, what, it, what, what had happened that this guy that, in theory, on paper, the man you're describing is like, I went to Wharton, I'm not one of these people... Why was he so bad? Well, to be fair, Spy Magazine also went went after the Blue Bloods too, sure. right? It wasn't just yep. Trump. Um, but I mean, I th- so what I asked this question, I put this question to Kurt, and the thing that he said was that at the time Spy was launching, it was like 1986, like the height of Reagan's America. Trump kind of embodied this like. Uh, kind of new money strivingness that was kind of taking sweeping the country, right? Mm-hmm. But but the thing about Trump is that he embodied it in all its most vulgar, grotesque forms, and there weren't really, at least according to Kurt, there weren't a lot of redeeming qualities, right? Like he wasn't giving a lot of money to charity. He would sometimes say that he gave money to charity, but there was never any evidence of it, right? Um, he would do things like I, one thing that I love that Kurt said was that like. Is he the the first philanderer in the world? No, but he's the first one to advertise it. So let's jump ahead. So we now have a picture of a guy. He's he's a new money guy trying to become with the elites. We have these presidential runs that didn't happen that are all part of this sort of thing. We get to the the 2014 era, start the 2016 cycle. <laughs> Do you have any sense of what it is that made him this time decide it was time to actually do it? Well, okay, so yes. Um, So I spoke to a bunch of Trump advisors, uh, people who have worked closely with him over the years. Uh, But I started with this guy, Sam Nunberg, uh, who was... uh, Worked for him for a while, was fired after my story came out because he arranged my access, rehired, then fired again. But (laughs) what he told me was that Trump's advisors were always trying to convince him to run. Um, and one of the ways they would do it is they would kind of dangle my story in front of him, uh, <laughs> saying, look how bad uh, McKay Coppins at BuzzFeed will look if you finally just do it. Uh, there's one story that Sam says that uh, he and Trump were kind of talking about uh, whether to do it. And, and, and Sam just goes, listen, if you run, think of how bad it'll make McKay look. And Trump just goes, you're right. Good point. <laughs> and so. So there are like moments like that, which like contribute to the it's McKay's fault theory. But there are also like many other people who have been saying this. Right. And and he watches so much cable news and he like reads every column in the New York Post and the the New York Daily News. Like he he knows what people are saying about him. It was just that this became such a big thing. Um, So in theory, he maybe he just got kind of fed up with being mocked. Yes. Oh, no, that is the reason. So okay. the, the okay. re- Yeah, so that's what I was getting. The, the reason is basically that he was backed up into a corner. Um, like, after 2012, remember, he really, in the lead up to 2012, like, strung along the political press. And, you know, they spent so much time writing about him. They wrote about the birther stuff. They, you know, like... Right, well, he'd he, achieved a great victory in 2012. I mean, he was able, with this birther thing, which was an old issue that had been around from Obama from the very beginning of his run for office... Trump had brought it back up in a way that at the time in 2011 was completely insane. And we're like, why are we talking about this again? And Trump starts to hammer it and hammer it and hammer it. And he gets Obama to release this long right. birth certificate, which at the time a lot of Republicans thought was real cool that he had done this. Mm-hmm. It was like a really awesome sort of like 
getting Obama on the ropes. <laughs> and when 2012 election came around, is he going to run? And then he ends up having, like, his endorsement is highly sought after he decides oh, yeah. not to I, run. I write about this. Like, I mean, every Republican candidate, you know, tr- made the trek to Trump Tower and tried to, like, kiss his ring and get him to give them his endorsement. Yeah, I mean, I mean you remember those, the footage of that. You'd watch them all go in and out. I mean, Mitt Romney, who is sort of the <laughs> ultimate elite guy. Though this is such a perfect example of kind of his tortured relationship with these elites. So Mitt Romney does do that. He goes to Trump Tower, uh, but he arranges to be able to slip out a back door so that no one can take a picture of him. Um, and Trump doesn't know about any of this, but like the literally going down there, his campaign manager, Mitt Romney's campaign manager said, no pictures, like don't let them take any pictures. So by the end of the 2012 campaign, the Romney campaign was sick of him the rnc was sick of him but you know he does something smart which is you know he turns to the kind of far right and the working class base that kind of has always loved him and he just kind of rallies them and he builds his support but i so i you know a lot of people have written about this i think though the thing that a lot of people have missed that i certainly missed uh until doing this story is that even going into this campaign, when he finally decides he's backed up against the wall, he feels like he has to run because no one's ever going to believe him again. When he decides to do it, he wants to do it right. Um, one of the stories I, I talk about is in the lead up to launching his campaign, he tries to hire Spencer Zwick, uh, who is Mitt Romney's chief finance uh, chair for, in the 2012 campaign. Sort of like an ultimate Republican elite. The most successful uh, Republican fundraiser in history. Right. Uh, knows literally like every rich Republican in America. Uh, so Donald Trump uh, tries to hire him. But what he does is he like keeps summoning him to Trump Tower. And Trump tries to kind of awe him and impress him in the most ridiculous ways. Like he'll have like beautiful women traipsing in and out. And, and in one of the early meetings, Trump Trump is sitting across from him in this like there, you know, this huge uh, conference table. And he goes, Spencer, you know, I'm really rich, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, you know, my friends are really rich, right? And, and Spencer's like, yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, and he was like, I could make you a lot of money if you come to work for me. <laughs> and it's just like, I mean, first of all, like Spencer's like doesn't need a lot. He has a lot of money already. And yeah. he doesn't need Donald Trump to help him make money. And and also a lot of really rich people are very skeptical of how rich Donald Trump actually is, whether he can actually help anyone make right. money is a very uh, sordid history. And uh, and basically, he he eventually... Decides, you know, the way that I'm going to win these people over is just by winning. So, so he announces the run. Why did nobody think he could win the nomination? Why, why did you not think? He well, could win? I mean, I, actually, I, I still vividly remember the day that he announced. I was up in New Hampshire at a town hall for Jeb Bush because he had just announced his campaign a day earlier, and he was doing his kind of kickoff tour. And I remember there was a moment of um, anxiety that I had where I remember watching the tweets like coming through of people just tweeting about Trump's thing and and just how crazy it was, but that he was actually running. And I remember being just like, wait, am I in the right place? But of course, like I just convinced myself I was right. And so (laughs) did everyone else. Like you're on Twitter and you're you're seeing what's happening. And literally every other political reporter, political commentator, is all saying this is a joke, this is ridiculous. Uh, there was like reports about how he had to hire actors to come fill out his, his right. event. Mm-hmm. There were reports about how he he hadn't filed his paperwork and maybe he never would. And I, 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 I bought into all of that because 
I wasn't ready yet to admit that like I totally got this guy wrong, you know? But at the end of the day, my thing about Trump was that like he doesn't want to go this far. Like he's not going to stick it out till Iowa. Like there's no way this guy isn't serious, right? And as it turns out, his his advisors tell me that There was a plan in place when he launched this campaign that he would jump in at the beginning of the summer, saturate the media, and then he would still have the option to pull out in time to re-up his apprentice contract in the fall. Like that was like a thing, a going theory among the Trump advisors. Like they and they felt like he would be able to saturate the media and hopefully get to the top of some polls just on the power of his personality and and all the media attention he was going to get. Name ID and all that. And then yep. he could pull out and be like, "Look, I made my point." Yeah, he he could always say like, "I could have done it." I mean, uh, some things changed though. One was that like. The Apprentice contract fell apart like the second he said Mexican rapists in his uh, his kickoff speech. So that's one thing that changed. And another thing that changed is, frankly, that he just was doing way better than anyone thought he would do, including himself and including his his people. One of the really interesting stories is uh, that I that I learned while reporting the story was that, you know, remember that first Trump gaffe that everyone thought was going to be the end. He he said that John McCain isn't a real war hero. He's a war Five hero. And a half years He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. Okay, I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with hero. that? He's a war hero. Because he was captured. When he he said that, like a lot of pundits were like, oh man, this just shows like there's no, this is not, he's not coming back from this, right? The interesting thing that I found is that Trump himself was very worried that, about that, much more worried than he let on. Sam Nunberg tells me when he was still working for him at this time, he would get calls from Trump at four in the morning uh, saying, Sam, I think I got to apologize for this. I think I've got to apologize. What do you think? You really think I shouldn't apologize? Because Trump was waking up at four o'clock in the morning to watch cable news about himself. And every talking head on TV was saying, this is a disaster. This is a catastrophe. And just through kind of osmosis, Trump was starting to believe it or at least worry about it. So part of his desire to be among the elites is that when these elites are attacking for this thing that he said, uh, he wants maybe he wants to go back and change it. So a, yeah, get right. Wow. And so, wow, that's an amazing little so I And so the, to me, that was kind of revealing because, you know, for all the stuff he says about the dishonest media, he cares a lot, not necessarily for like ethical or moral reasons or like, was it actually right to attack a war hero? But like, he's at least worried about whether it's going to, you know, hurt him um, is, is self-assured and cocky as he seems on TV. Uh, you know, he, he has a real kind of anxiety and insecurity to him. Well, why do you think he said the McCain thing? Do you have any idea of why he would say everything? Well, I mean, because he hates John McCain, right? Okay. I mean, this enough. is the thing about Trump. Like, what, one of the things that, that I always find, it, it was the same when he attacked me. Like, he he has an interesting way of attacking people. Often it's like, literally just by not even trying to root it in any kind of fact or anything, but just like, whatever he thinks the person is most proud of or finds most important he just says the uh, he inverts inverts it and uses that as an attack so for example when i was interviewing trump in early 2014 uh he saw a picture of my wife and baby and like and uh you know said oh you, it's a good looking woman your your wife and Which, uh, by the way class all class <laughs> And I have to say, as a, as a little surprise, I uh, back that I sent Annie, my wife, the tra- the recording of that interview. I was like, just go to like minute forty forty. You just listen to that for a sec. 
And she was like, wait, what? <laughs> Donald Trump just got me good looking. But what was funny is that, so we had this whole, so Donald Trump and I actually had this whole like very like nice conversation about family and like his kids. And my, I had a, you know, young daughter at the time. And, and I think he knew that I, you know, that I was like kind of a family guy and I consider him as a family guy. Right. So when he, the story comes out and he decides he hates it, the first thing he does, the first tweet he writes is he says that he was being sarcastic about my wife. When he said that she was good looking and then like proceeds to fabricate this whole story about me saying that I was like, you know, hitting on women at Mar-a-Lago and that I was uh, that he literally he said that at one point a beautiful woman walked past and I said, I wish my wife looked like that. (laughs) (laughs) like so it's just interesting because he literally he obviously t- fa- like zeroed in on something that he realized I found important and and went after that right like he is kind of a classic like bully in that way like he knows yeah. exactly where the thing is to attack but so with in the case of John McCain right he like attacked John McCain because he's a war hero and he's proud of his service to his right. country it's strongest and thing. so he's gonna he's gonna say he's not a war hero like right. he's he's a loser when it comes to war right, right. Um, and that's, just, <laughs> that's just kind of his mo so he's a classic bully and you've been bullied by him but also you have now learned about this sort of like neurosis that drives his life mm-hmm. so do you, do you do you kind of feel bad for Trump? Uh, Yeah, I have from the beginning, actually. I mean, Hmm. if you go back and read that 2014 story, like, I... I mean, it wasn't like a vicious takedown. Like, I think it has become in the popular imagination, it has become like viewed as that among like media people and political people because Trump freaked out about it so much. But like, even back then, I mean, I wrote about the like nice conversation we had about families and I wrote about this kind of insecurity uh, and this vulnerability and anxiety. I just didn't realize how deep it was and where it came from. Right. And so you know, now having done all this reporting and talked to all these people who have known him at various points in his life, like, yeah, I feel bad for him. I think that the story of Donald Trump is actually a tragic one and made more tragic because it seems like it really is the thing that matters most to him. That is sad. I think it's sad anytime any human is wants something that badly and just can never figure out how to get it. So yeah, I, I do. I feel bad for him, but it also doesn't erase the, you know, scary and dangerous things that he's been saying throughout the campaign. Right. That's my point, too, is that isn't part of the tragedy that the way he tries to earn this credibility is by really unleashing right. uh, something that it may, I mean, it's... We don't know what we're looking at, really, but I mean, what I'm watching is a Republican Party that has literally still has no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. top leaders can't figure out whether or not they should just <laughs> say this guy's terrible right. and get away from it. Right. I mean, at this point, they seem to have settled on just use a teleprompter. <laughs> that seems to be that. That seems to be the one thing that they figured out right. how to do, right? And if only they can now just have a teleprompter that teaches him how to be president, and he can carry it around with him, then he'll be a great president, right? But I mean, there's a danger to what he's unleashed. I mean, I think no, people of don't course, really, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is you're right. That is another element of the tragedy because there is another alternate reality here where Trump could have gotten to Manhattan and decided that the way to become like a proper, uh, you know, New York elite was to like give tons of money to charity and actually does get on the inside. And then maybe he's not, you know, he's not like out there Muslim bashing and talking about Mexican rapists uh, right. to, to try to somehow in some kind of twisted way win credibility. Um, but I mean, it's I think that that ship has long ago 
sale. This is why the whole idea that Trump will one day become presidential, it's just not, it's never going to happen. This is, this is Donald Trump. He's been this way. This is the sum of a long life and a lot of experiences. And you can't just like change that when he decides to become presidential. So at the end of this conversation, do we know what the end result of this man dragging an entire political party on a personal quest (laughs) for acceptance? Do we know anything about how that story ends? Is this the is this the part where you ask, do we know anything? And I say, okay. The answer you can is, say the answer. The is, answer what do you is, know? Well, I just always want to say no. I listen to your podcast so long. But what I will say is that um, there are lots of examples of this through history. And I think in terms of the scope of my, my piece, like one thing I can say for sure is that no matter what happens, he can win, become president. He can have his face on Mount Rushmore. He's never going to get rid of this like gnawing status anxiety. It's always going to be there. The question, I guess, is just like how much damage does he do along the way as he tries to fix it? All right. Well, McKay Coppins, thank you is that for a cheery way to end. This I mean, that is the way to end it. I mean, I think I, th- I think you're exactly right, uh, McKay Coppins. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for being on the show. Um, this story of yours is a good one. Everyone should read it, and they should go back and read the other one and watch a debate clip. It's just you know, this is. I think people are interested in this Trump stuff anyway. So, McKay, thank you for coming in. Thank you. We recorded this interview with McKay at the end of June, before his story was actually totally done. He was in the process of making it, and a really amazing thing happened right before the story got published. And I want to tell you about it, because it really makes it put the right cap on this interview you just listened to. Donald Trump sends McKay an email uh, after McKay requests some comment on the story he's writing. Let me read it to you in full. McKay, you got it all wrong, but I won't hold it against you. Nor do you have to pay the one-year salary to me you guaranteed if I ran. I will let you off the hook. And remember, not only did I run in the primaries, I won. Watch what happens in the general. Best wishes, Donald J. Trump. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer. One of the great sleazebags of our time. Editorial oversight comes from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan. Really a terrible group of people. They write lies. They write false stories. They know they're false. It makes no difference. Production help comes from Julia Furlan. She's a world-class liar. And Antonia Sarahito. Well, I think the only card she has is the woman's card. She's got nothing else going. Our music was composed by Beauty Pill. He put glasses on so people will think he's smart. And it just doesn't work. You know, people can see through the glasses. Subscribe on iTunes to follow all of our coverage from the convention this week and email us anytime at noonknowsanything at buzzfeed.com. I'm your host, Evan McMorris-Santoro. Two days ago, he said he would take his pants off and moon everybody. And that's fine. Nobody reports that. He gets up and says that... And then he tells me, oh, my language was a little bit rough. And we'll be back soon with more things we don't know.